The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, if the heavens are speaking of your glory, we would desire to speak the same. Teach us the language of worship as we come before you now. Grant us entrance through Jesus Christ into the heavenly assembly of all your people, your angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, and your fiery throne from which you reign and judge all the nations of the earth. We exalt you now, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and amen. We continue on in our study of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. We're going through a series there. And we come now to the virtue of goodness. But before I explain what goodness is, I want to give us a short reminder. And that is, the fruit in Galatians 5 is singular, not plural. It is fruit, not fruits. It is not like love is an apple, joy is a pear, and patience is a plum, all growing on the same tree. Have you ever actually seen that? No, it is one fruit tree that bears one kind of fruit. These nine virtues we are studying are more like nine interconnected, mutually indwelling flavors that make the fruit of the Spirit the best tasting fruit in the garden of God. So it's not nine different fruits on one tree. It is one fruit with all nine flavors within it. Let me give you an example of how these virtues interpenetrate. Let's take love, for example. Spirit-wrought love is joyful love, peaceful love, patient love, kind love, good love, faithful love, gentle love, and self-controlled love. And true love is only true love when all these other virtues are inside of it. In the spirit, there is no such thing as impatient love or joyless love. It's all or nothing. Either all the virtues are present or the one that you think you have is not really there at all. So that's the reminder. Every virtue we go through should have all the others contained inside of it. And this week we are looking at goodness. So what is goodness? The word goodness here has the sense of generosity to it. It is not merely moral purity or uh, being a goody two-shoes. It is the act of looking for someone to show goodness to. Goodness has a direct object. Proverbs 22.9 says, The man with a generous eye will be blessed. Goodness has a generous eye. I. It is looking for opportunities to bless other people. So as Christians who have the spirit inside of us, we should be asking, who can I bless and how can I bless them? That's what goodness does. So children, listen up. Instead of waiting for mom or dad to tell you to clean up or uh, put your shoes on or brush your teeth or share with your sister, goodness means looking for opportunities to love your siblings and to honor your parents without them having to ask you. Mothers, wives, for you, goodness looks like going out of your way to thank your husband for his work, especially when you are feeling tired and overlooked, especially when you feel like nobody has thanked you for your work all day. Goodness is generously giving even when the tank feels empty. Trust God to fill you up. And fathers and husbands, for you, goodness looks like seeking opportunities to be lavish in your generosity towards your children and your wife. Pour on them the affection and undivided attention that cheers their souls. 
And when you are weary from carrying the burden of headship, goodness bears that burden up with a song of gladness, with a smile on the face. Goodness sings songs of gratitude to God. Our God is a God with a generous eye. He looked at you, didn't he? He is the God of all goodness, and we all must imitate him. So the exhortation is this. Be good. Don't be bad. But be good like God is good. From Psalm 19. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Father, we confess that we are far from good. We are stingy and spiteful because we think you are stingy and spiteful. Forgive us for this blasphemy. We ask that you would now search our hearts and show us where we have neglected to have a generous eye towards those closest to us. We confess our individual sins to you now in Selah. We ask all this in the name of Jesus and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. From Isaiah 26, 12, Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. Saints of Christ Church, because you have confessed your sins to God, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thank you, God. Amen. The sermon text today is taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, and I'll continue into chapter 3 through verse 7. Please give your attention. This is God's word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, For what glory is it if, when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well. And are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have not been silent. You are not far off, that you have drawn near to us in Jesus. You have drawn near to us in your spirit, and you have drawn near to us by your word. So, Father, we, we humbly submit ourselves now. We surrender now to your word, and we ask you, have your way with us. Confront us, rebuke us, correct us, encourage us. You know what we need. 
And so we ask that you would feed us now in Jesus' name. And amen. You may be seated. One of the results of rebelling against the lordship of Jesus and his authority over all things is somewhat ironically a humanistic obsession with power. Uh, we have power problems and we're, we're, we're rather obsessive about the problems that we have and this is, this is one of the results of rebelling against the lordship of Jesus. When human societies reject the power of the cross, when they reject the power of the cross and they call the cross oppressive and tyrannical, when they call the lordship of Jesus um, hateful, uh, the whole point is to create a void for fools to rush into. The whole, the whole point is to create a void. The whole point is to say, maybe there's a job opening. Under the lordship of Jesus, all lawful authority is established, delegated, and therefore accountable to Christ. And so what we've seen in this, what we see broadly in this text is Paul working his way through all the basic um, uh, institutions of authority in the world. Not all of them, but many of them. And so we have uh, masters and slaves. Actually, we could have started reading sooner. And earlier in chapter 2, Peter says that we're to submit ourselves unto governors, um, those um, even kings, um, all those in authority. Uh, so he began there. We began. We picked up with the servants and the masters. And then he moves on to wives and husbands and then husbands and wives and so on and, and so forth. So under the lordship of Jesus, all lawful authority is established Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, which means, um, it, it, it implies, of course, there are other lords. There are other kings. He's the lord of the other lords. He's the king of the other kings. He establishes all lawful authority. Their authority is delegated to them. He gives it to them. He gives them their authority. And therefore, and only because it is derived from him, is it accountable to him. It's his authority. He gives them the card. He gives them the crown. He gives them the license. Here, I give you the authority of fatherhood. I give you the authority of motherhood. I give you the authority of, of being a governor or a president or a judge. I give you the authority of being a husband. Because it is established by Jesus and because it is delegated to all by Jesus, it is therefore accountable to him. But that's the only grounds upon which it can be accountable to him. It's because it belongs to him. It's his. He gave it in the first place, and that's why it's accountable to him. But when Christ is rejected, everything is up for grabs. And you could flip this around and just say the inverse of this. Incidentally, when everything is up for grabs, you know that Christ is in the process of being rejected. You, you understand that? You follow that? So when, because Christ is the one who gives the authority, if we're rejecting Christ, we are rejecting order, we're rejecting the ability to hold people accountable. And when everything is up for grabs, when things start going chaotic, you should think to yourself, ah, we are rejecting Christ. We are rejecting the authority of Jesus. And Christians are sometimes tempted in the name of realism to join one of the factions or embrace some of their tactics. So this is, what, this is what Peter is getting at in this, in this passage. He's, he, he, knows, he knows that his audience, Christians know Jesus is Lord, and that doesn't mean that all authorities are using their authority wisely. It doesn't mean they're using their authority rightly. It doesn't mean that they're doing a good job. And, and Peter knows that in that context, our temptation is to join one of the factions, uh, join one of the special interest groups, um, or maybe at the very least embrace some of their tactics to join um, those who are basically throwing everything into chaos, to join um, those who would want everything to be up for grabs. Christians are tempted in the name of realism to do this, right? Realistically, this is just the situation we live in. Realistically, politicians are liars. Realistically, husbands abuse their authority. Realistically, parents don't know how to raise their children, right? Realistically, we're all a mess, and so can you really, can we really obey what Jesus says to do? I mean, that's nice for ideal situations for wives to submit to their husbands, but what about abusive situations? It, it, it's, it's a really nice idea for, parents, for children to obey their parents. 
I mean, that's nice in a nice community, in a nice family, but is that realistic to tell children to obey their parents? Is it realistic? And so in the name of realism, we are tempted frequently to say, yeah, that, those instructions to obey, those instructions to submit, those are, those are nice when you can. It sure would be nice to be, I really would love to be able to do that. But you see, in my situation, it, it just doesn't work. That's the temptation. But, nevertheless, Peter here and throughout the scriptures, we are told over and over again that if we are to embrace the lordship of Jesus, if we are going to say those words, Jesus is Lord, which is arguably the most basic, simplistic um, announcement of the gospel, Jesus is Lord, it's the most basic confession of faith, if we are going to say those words, this must mean that we are, we are submitting ourselves to his assignments in our lives. If he's Lord, if he's Lord of all and over all, then he's Lord of you. He's Lord of me. And so we are to embrace and submit to his assignments in our lives. And what I want to unpack here for a few minutes this morning is, is I want to, want to point out, running through this, is what Luther one time called uh, left-handed power. So Luther, um, in one place, and this has been, has been uh, unpacked by other theologians, says that, that God sometimes uses what we might call right-handed power, which is just straight up the middle, commands, um, and, and just making something happen. This is right-handed power, straightforward authority, straightforward power. But here, Peter calls us and all Christians to embrace the example of Jesus which is an example of left-handed power. Now, part of the problem we have with obeying uh, the commands of God, one of the problems we have with obeying the commands of God, is our flawed value system. We have, we have in, because of Adam, because of our sin, because of our blindness, because of our insanity and sin, our values are all whack. Our, vo- our values are all messed up and confused. We don't value the things that God values, and so his commands can seem very strange. When you don't value, you don't see what things are valuable, you don't see what things are powerful, you don't, you don't understand what God's up to. When he says, go do this, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, and, and maybe we do it half-heartedly because he said to do it, but our heart's not in it because we don't get it. And sometimes you have to obey anyways. But part of maybe what's helpful in understanding what he's calling us to is recognizing our value system is messed up. It would be a little like suddenly arriving in a civilization where everyone scrupulously saved pennies but threw away all the quarters. Right? Or, you know, change it up. You know, everybody saved dollar bills and they threw away $100 bills. Oh, that, maybe that's a little more helpful. Um, Right? You arrive in a society and you see people there and they just drop, you know, hundred. it's just a hundred dollar bill and they throw it on the ground or they light it on fire and they throw it away, just a hundred dollar bill. And then they see a dollar bill on the sidewalk and they go running after it. They got a dollar. They stuff it in their pocket and they've got boxes at home full of one dollar bills, you know, or, or pennies again, you know, and they, but they see the quarters, they see the hundred dollar bills and they're like, yeah, whatever. And you walk into this, you're like, what's wrong with you people, right? What are you doing? What are you doing? It would be backward and wasteful. But what if you grew up in that backward civilization and then suddenly arrived back in our present day, you somehow got rescued from that strange place and brought into our world, and all of a, what would happen? Well, you might still find yourself having old habits of throwing quarters away and strange attachments to pennies. Right? If you've been doing that, you've been raised with that, and your, your parents said, no, that's a penny. Grab that penny. It's a penny. Get it. Make sure you don't miss it. And he's, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a quarter. Don't worry about it. You know, it's just a $100 bill. Just leave it. Don't worry. Oh, it's a dollar bill. Save that. Hang on. If you've been raised in that, you've been trained up in that, and you've practiced that for many years, and you suddenly show up back in our world, you might still find yourself having these old habits, and you might occasionally see a, a quarter or a hun- you know, the hundred, and you, you just think, oh, whatever. Wait, what am I doing? And you run back and you grab it, right? You stop for a minute, and you think, and then you see a penny, and you grab it. And everybody's looking at you like, what are you doing? Everybody's like, uh, yeah, yeah, never mind. <laughs> not, not from here. <laughs> right? Um, this is what it's like becoming a Christian. When you become a Christian, 
your value system is in the process of being completely um, upended and redone. Because in Adam, you thought certain things were really important. In your sin, you thought there were certain things that were really powerful and really, um, uh, really significant and really valuable, and you ran after them. And then when you become a Christian, when Jesus takes up residence in your life, in your heart, he gives you a new value system. It's actually the value system of reality. He says, you've been running after these things that are not very valuable for a long time, and you've been throwing away really valuable things and powerful things. And in Jesus, God's reorienting us to the way God actually made the world. In addition to the old man and the flesh striving with the spirit and the new man, we have cultural norms and systems that reinforce various sins or virtues. So you have people all around you, you know, cheering you on when you, when you throw away the quarter and you, and you dive on the penny. <laughs> yeah, way to go, you got the penny, right? And, and so that's part of the deal. And so you, you come in, you're, you're reoriented, and you have that value system reoriented, but there's systems in place that aren't necessarily all agreeing with God's system. And so there you are, and you're, do I dive on the penny or do I not? Do I, do I treat it like a quarter or not? Do I treat it like the $100 bill or not? So this is part of the challenge as well. Now, this reorienting of value is wound all through this passage that I just read. What are slaves supposed to value? What are servants supposed to value? What are wives supposed to value? What are husbands supposed to value? And we could, add, we could just add examples. What should children value? What should uh, subjects of, uh, of, a, of a civil state value? What should we value? What should we think is powerful? And underlying all of it, and what we see uh, implied, it's, it's, it's several times mentioned actually, is what does God value? All right, so in the passage on the servants, you know, you get, you get in trouble because you did something wrong. Well, you know, that's kind of, that's normal. But what happens if you were being righteous and obedient and you get beaten for that? God sees that and it's valuable to him. What happens if you're a wife who has a disobedient husband and he's, he's rude to you and he's, he's not kind to you and he's not seeking Christ and, and, and you put on a, a gentle and quiet spirit and you adorn the gospel in your life? God sees that and it's a very great price to him. You see that? So what are we supposed to be valuing is part of the question running through this text. But then secondarily, we're to value it because God does. Because God says, this is very valuable. This is of great price. This is very powerful. Don't you see? This is powerful. The believing slave is to suffer injustice patiently by trusting him who judges righteously, verses 20 through 23. Why? Well, this is the example that Jesus gave us. And what did Jesus do when he did that? What, what did Jesus accomplish when he didn't revile in return, when he didn't threaten, when he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously? Well, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He killed sin in our life so that we might be dead to it, so that we might live to righteousness. And he, we were all like sheep going astray, and he brought us all home. When Jesus entrusted himself to God's value system, it became powerful and it saved you. That, that's, the, that's the subtext. That's the message. Or the wife with the disobedient husband who's to submit without a word. Right? We, we think words are powerful. They are. We, we think what you need to do is just you just need to talk to that person. You just need to tell them. You need to write a letter. Write it down. In many instances, that's the right thing to do. But Peter says, you know, it would be really powerful. Don't say anything. Make the gospel beautiful and let God be powerful in and through your spiritual adornment. The wife with the disobedient husband is to submit without a word, adorning, adorning her life with the beauty of holiness, trusting in God without fear. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Why? Is this just a coping mechanism? No. Peter says, so that you might win your husband. It's a, it's a power play. It's a godly power play. Peter says, you want to know how to win him? You need to get God's attention. Get God's attention by adorning your life with the beauty of holiness, which is of great value in his sight. And when God sees something precious, 
of his being mistreated, he acts. This is how to tap into a deeper power, left-handed power. And husbands are to honor their wives as the weaker vessel, that their prayers might be answered. Even there in verse 7, likewise husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. The positive implication of this, of course, is so that your prayers might be answered. Do you want to have direct access to the throne of grace? Listen to your wife carefully so that God will listen to you carefully. That's power. What's valuable? What's powerful? Patient obedience and trust in God. A little further down in 1 Peter 3, Peter says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. For the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. That's, that's real power. That's where the real power is, is when God's eyes are on you, when his ears are open to you. If his eyes are open to you, if his ears are open to you, then you are in the safest, most powerful place possible. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. You may have a lot of respect, you may have a lot of authority, you may have a lot of money, you may have a lot of people listening to you, you may have a lot of people running after you and following you, you may have all those things, but if the face of the Lord is against you, you are powerless. You don't have all the authority and power you think you might have. The central model for this left-handed power, this power that taps into God's supernatural working in the world, is Jesus. The central model is Jesus, who suffered for us, leaving us an example. That's what he says in verse 21. He's talking to the servants there. For hereunto you were ye called, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And notice then at 3.1 and 2.7, he's got those words, likewise, likewise, likewise. Right? That's the same example. The same example is still the prime example, and Peter is applying this to other scenarios. Likewise, wives, you apply that example here. Likewise, husbands, you apply that example here. The central model for this left-handed power is Jesus. He, of all people, had the best excuses, the best argument for why everyone around him was wrong and how they were all going down. <laughs> if anybody had that argument, it was Jesus, because they were wrong and they were going down. If anyone had the right to say, you guys are all wrong, you got this absolute, you're going, no, man, you're completely wrong, backwards, lying, liar, 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 pants on fire, right? All of it. Like, he could walk through it all and, and tell them why they were all wrong, all messed up, all going down, going to be judged. He had the right to do that. But he did no sin, neither was any guile found in his mouth. Verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. What is guile? What is guile? Guile is cunning, craftiness, wiliness, slyness, deviousness, plotting, duplicity, or treachery. Plotting, cunning, craftiness, slyness, deviousness, duplicity, treachery. On the one hand, Peter is likely emphasizing just how perfect Jesus was. Uh, he, he didn't even sin with his mouth. That's, that's one part of it. Remember James chapter 3 says, We all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in a word, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Right? And nobody, nobody can bridle the tongue. Everybody sins with their mouth. And so there's one sense in which we can say, well, that's what Peter's emphasizing. He was really perfect when it says there was not even any guile in his mouth. I mean, he was sinless all the way through, even to what he said. Nothing slipped out. And as Jesus insisted, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34. James again says, if any one of you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. 
If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. If you put all this together, the first result of a changed heart will be a changed tongue, a changed mouth. Out of the heart, right? out of the mouth comes the abundance of the heart. So if you have a new heart, things are going to start coming out of your mouth and out of your tongue that are very different. But there are plenty of people who think they are very religious who are setting whole forests on fire with their words. Bitterness is a root that defiles many. And th this comes out, though, specifically when things are going hard, when things are going wrong, when we think we're being treated unjustly, when we think people have misunderstood us, and per perhaps particularly when it's in situations where there's some kind of authority structure in place. You're my dad. You're supposed to understand me, and you're not. You're my husband. You're you have a responsibility to love me, and you're not. You're the king. You're the judge. You're supposed to diligently inquire into the circumstances, and you're not. And just keep multiplying the, the scenarios. When there's a, an authority structure in place, and the authority is there in order to carry out the good things of God, justice and love and care and all these things, and that authority structure is messing things up, we're even more tempted to fuss, to complain, to curse. Some Christians who claim the name of Christ are just straight up bitter and foul. Full of, their mouths are full of cursing and complaining like verbal terrorists. And if this is you, you are self-deceived and your religion is useless. It doesn't matter what you do on Sunday mornings. It doesn't matter if you're in the choir. It doesn't matter if you go to Bible studies. If your mouths are full of bitterness and cursing and complaining, you are self-deceived and your religion is useless. It does you absolutely no good. You are full of guile. Because you're saying one thing with your mouth and you're saying another. You're a hypocrite. Most Christians, however, are a lot more self-aware and careful. But they can still be self-deceived. So they don't, they're not going around cursing and, and complaining and being bitter. But they can still be very self-deceived. And this brings us back to the idea of guile which is closely related to the idea of dissembling. Dissembling is a good old King James word. To dissemble is to conceal your true motives, your true feelings, your true beliefs. Right? So, so somebody says you're going to have to do this, and you're saying, all right, fine. And in your heart, there's cursing. In your heart, there's a bad attitude. In your heart, there's complaining. Why? What, what's, what's he doing? Why is she doing this again? Well, sure, I'll, I could be glad to do that. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get right on that. And in your heart, right? In your heart, you're angry. In your heart, you're fussing. In your heart, you're mad. But when Jesus suffered unjustly, and he was the one who had the right to object. If anyone had the right, it was him. When he suffered unjustly, he was not dissembling. He was not concealing his true motives, feelings, or beliefs. There was no guile found in his mouth. He told them, albeit sometimes somewhat uh, mysteriously, but when he was accused, he didn't accuse in return, and he, 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 told, he didn't answer a lot of things, but a lot of things he told them. Well, are you a king? Well, yeah, you say that I am. Are, you know, are you here trying to lead an armed revolt? Well, if I wanted to, I mean, I could call lots of soldiers down, but I haven't. You would have no authority except it was given to you by another. Ask anybody. I've been preaching and teaching publicly my entire ministry. Ask any of them. They know what I've said. It's not been done in secret. Nothing's been said in secret. There was no guile found in his mouth. He was, no, he was not hiding true motives, feelings, or beliefs. What he had said, he said publicly. There were records of it. There were witnesses of it. He was not pretending anything. He was not being crafty or duplicitous. His intentions and motives and plans were right out in the open for all to see. And this is the example for slaves, wives, husbands, and all Christians. Christian submission does not mean putting a brave face on it while freaking out inside, muttering threats under your breath, smiling in public while cursing in your heart, 
or passive aggressive avoidance of conflict while pushing your own agenda quietly. All of that is guile in your mouth. All of that is guile in your mouth. Okay, fine, I'm going to push this way. If I do it, if I don't ask, maybe I can get away with it. Fine, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to be happy about it. Fine, I'm going to do it, but I'm mad about it. Sure, be happy to do that when you're not happy at all. That's called guile. That's called dissembling. Trusting God means loving him most of all. In Luke, Jesus says, If any man come to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26. Remember, this is the same Jesus who affirmed the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. He condemned building campaigns that functioned as write-offs for financially supporting parents. Mark 7, you say whatever you could have given to your parents to support them is Corbin. All right, so this is the same Jesus who insists on honoring father and mother, husband, wife, children, and so forth. So clearly the point that Jesus is making is that he requires absolute loyalty to follow him. Absolute loyalty to follow him. Love for Jesus must be ultimate must be supreme, and we must be willing to surrender anything and everything that Jesus requires us to surrender. That's what it means to be fully in submission to Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, is whatever he requires to take, he can take. If he will take my father, if he will take my mother, if he will take my sister, if he will take my wife, if he will take one of my children, if he will take my life, if he requires it, I gladly surrender it. He gave all for me. And so he owns all of me. In Sheldon Van Auken's book, A Severe Mercy, he recounts what it felt like when his wife, whom he called Davy, became a Christian before him. He describes her going to church and Bible studies without him, and he said, it felt like unfaithfulness. It felt like she had met someone else. And I was left at home, and I knew where she was going. He says in one place that it made it even worse when she would do nice things to him and for him. Because he says, it felt like she was not even doing it just for me. She was doing it for God. Love for Jesus will sometimes appear dismissive, even hateful of good gifts of God. Why? Because you love Jesus way more. The biblical name for anything that feels threatened by Jesus is an idol. An idol need not be an actual statue or image. It can just as easily be an image in your head, a scene of happiness a desire for respect and leadership, a theological conviction, a longing for a certain job, a certain kind of church, a certain spouse, sex, children, a kind of family, the perfect house, sweet friendship, whatever. What do you daydream about? What do you imagine? What do you hope for? It's not evil, it's not a sin to daydream, it's not a sin to have dreams. It's not wicked to imagine what things might be like so long as they are held under the lordship of Jesus. So long as recognizing that Jesus is king, he's lord and he knows best of all. And so not my will but your will. I've got these ideas, God, but this might be a terrible idea. I think it would be wonderful to be married and have that kind of job and have that kind of position in the church and have people coming to my house for Bible studies and have, you know, there's a playroom and there's kids and they laugh around the dinner table and all these things you imagine being wonderful and, and okay, fine. But if Jesus at any point says that would not be good for you or my plan or this world and no, you can't, we must be the kind of people who say thank you, <laughs> thank you, please don't let it be like my plan if that's a bad plan. Not my will, but your will. Because you love Jesus way more. But if Jesus says, what if I don't give you that thing? 
What if I don't? What if I take it from you and you say, ah, there's something inside you that screams. It's called an idol. It's called an idol. It's still a graven image. It's still an imagined reality that you are placing your hopes in for joy and happiness and pleasure, success, to, to come to the end of your days saying, I had a good life. I had a meaningful life. It was a good life. But if that's not God's plan for you, you must, to be a Christian means you've confessed that Jesus is Lord. To be the servant who's mistreated by the master. If this is to what you've been called, then Peter says, do you see that as powerful? Do you see that as beautiful? Do you see that as valuable? If, you've, if you're the wife that's married to a disobedient husband who's called to adorn the gospel in her conversation, in her conduct, in the way she lives her life, in her submission to her husband, do you see that as glorious and beautiful and powerful and valuable? Or a husband who's married to a difficult woman who is bitter and fussy and nothing you do seems good enough. You say, I've been doing the honor of the weak thing for a long time. And I'm getting tired of it because she's not listening. It's not getting better. She has a hard heart. But what if that's what God's called you to? God says, yes, I know, she's difficult, and it's exactly what you need. I brought her to you. You said, for the rest of my life? Well, what if it is for the rest of your life? If that's Jesus' plan for you, yes, married to a difficult woman for the rest of your life. Submission to that is glorious, so long as you're being obedient to Jesus. So long as you're not laying down and, and flopping, so long as you're not you're giving up, becoming apathetic, the point is not to have low expectations or do a soccer flop of apathy. Right? Well, well there's nothing to be done. Right? Right? That's not the point. Right? The, the point is not to have low expectations or, or do the soccer flop of apathy. The point is true and complete submission to the Lordship of Jesus. In whatever station he's called you to say, okay, Jesus, you have signed me this task. I am a person in submission to this person in authority, and it's challenging. Or I am a position in a position of authority, and I've got to take care of these people, and they're difficult. And I want to do the best I possibly can with what you've called me to do without any guile in my mouth. Without any dissembling in my heart. To do it honestly before God. God, you are God and I am not. You have to act here. You have to work here. I submit it all to you because I love you more than anything. Do what needs to be done. Hear me. Act for me. Judge me. The point is true and complete submission. Do you love Jesus more than anything? Do you trust Jesus? Left-handed power is God's power working in history through men, women, slaves, Christians who simply trust and obey him in the midst of injustice, in the midst of disobedience, in the midst of weakness, in the midst of trouble. It's God's power working through his people who are obedient. It's not God's power working through people who flop. It's not God's power working through people who begin to not care. That's not the point. Left-handed power is power. Sometimes Christians get the, the wrong-headed idea that Christianity is not about power. It is about power. It's about God's power, though. It's not a humanistic power. It's not a, it's not a, a tyrannical power. It's not a coercive power. It's about God's holy power, his good power, his sovereign power, centered in the cross of Jesus. Christians trust and obey Jesus in the midst of whatever circumstances they find themselves in. And this trust 
is evident in their words that reflect honest, trusting hearts. So the best test of are you trusting God is what's coming out of your mouth. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Is there guile in your mouth? You're like, yeah, I believe in submission. Yeah, I do, I do, I do that all the time. And you know, he's a big jerk, but I do it. Right? I, yeah, I'm trying to love this woman. She's, you know, yeah. I can't, I can't, I mean, I'm doing it, sure. But I hate it. You know, no. Trusting God means obeying him gladly, honestly. And out of your mouth comes, I'm sure glad, I'm sure glad I can love this woman. I'm sure glad I get to submit to this man. I'm sure glad I get to submit to this employer. I'm sure glad that God's called me here to this place where I can be obedient to Jesus in this place with the authority he's given to me, with the responsibilities he's given to me. I'm going to do what he calls me to do, not because I've given up, but because I want God to act. Because I, got, I want God to bless. I want God to work powerfully through me. I have no idea how he's going to do it or what he's going to do it. And I want to just be there, ready to stand, honestly, cheerfully, and say, God, do what you need to do. Do what it takes. There's no guile found in our mouths because there's no guile found in our hearts. Because in Christ we have new hearts. And if you can't get the guile to stop, then you need to seriously look at the heart. We love Jesus more than anything and anyone because he suffered for us. And now we have died to sin, and by his stripes we are healed. We had gone astray, but he has brought us home. And so we trust him with it all. We trust him with it all. We trust him with the family. We trust him with the marriage. We trust him with our singleness. We trust him with our childlessness. We trust him with a difficult job. We trust him with difficult employees. We trust him with our housing. We trust him with it all. He is watching and he is listening. His eyes are open. His ears are open to the righteous, to those who submit to him, to those who surrender to him, to those who say, God, you are God and I am not, and that is good. So have your way. And he will judge righteously. Amen. God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that we are not, we are not the saviors of our life. We are not God, you are God, and Jesus is our Savior. Father, we ask that you would pour out his spirit upon us. That wherever it is where we have practiced guile and dissembling in our hearts and our words, where we've complained about things, where we've muttered under our breath, where we've been resistant to where you have put us, Father, I pray that your spirit would convict us, give us soft hearts to you, not soft hearts that make us apathetic, but soft hearts that make us courageous, soft hearts that give us boldness and joy to obey you in whatever circumstance you've placed us in because you are Lord. In 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul's getting ready to give the words of institution for the Lord's Supper, he says these words, When you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and partly I believe it. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Paul says that when people gather together in order to celebrate the Lord's Supper, when there are divisions among them, they are not actually eating the Lord's Supper. You might go to a church service, and there might be bread and wine, but if there are divisions, it isn't the Lord's Supper. But the result is not just a benign neutrality, it's just common bread and wine, Paul says that they come together not for the better, but for the worse. Later, he says that people who do this, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking damnation upon themselves by not discerning the Lord's body. Now, this can happen with people in the same room together, between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between elders or deacons or members of the congregation. And this is one reason why it's a good practice to look around during the Lord's Supper. Make eye contact with members of your family, with those around you. Is there anyone here that you'd rather not make eye contact with? Why not? Paul says we are to discern the Lord's body. That's all of us together. We are his body. We are one loaf. But recognize that sinful hearts look for workarounds. 
So maybe you go to the downtown service so you don't have to risk seeing someone at the main campus or the first service so you don't have to see someone at the second. You can look around here or at the service and feel pretty comfortable because you're pretty sure they're not here. But that isn't the same thing as discerning the Lord's body. It's entirely possible to bring divisions to the table with you, even if the division isn't visible at the table with you. So this is the exhortation. This meal signifies the broken body and shed blood of Jesus for all your sins and for all the sins of every Christian. Welcome here. This is the basis of our unity. And therefore, you can cheerfully entrust whatever bumps, whatever tensions, whatever misunderstandings, whatever sin there have been to Jesus. Because he is the host of this table. See, that's hard. <laughs> okay, so you need grace. The good news is that part of what Jesus is doing here is giving you the grace to deal with those challenges faithfully. Do you want that grace? Then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you that you sent Jesus and that he was broken on the cross because we are a broken people. There are divisions among us. And Father, we know this is awful and horrible and evil. And so Father, we pray now. We offer up to you now all the, all the brokenness in our hearts, in our relationships, the places where we have felt tension and strife. Father, we offer it to you now. We surrender it to you now. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks that he has died to put it all right. Amen. So remember, God loves left-handed power. The central sign of left-handed power is the death and resurrection of Jesus. They killed Jesus thinking they'd ended him. But in killing Jesus, of course, he ended them. In killing Jesus, he saved us. He brought us home. He rescued us. The cross and grave of Jesus, the empty grave of Jesus, is the power of God. This doesn't establish, this doesn't, um, this doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't um, dissolve, it doesn't um, cast away your responsibilities as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children and citizens and magistrates. It establishes it. And so when it, when it establishes it, though, don't fall back into thinking this is all there is. No, it all points to the lordship of Jesus Christ, his power over it all. So as you take up your responsibilities, take it up in the power of the cross and the power of the gospel, recognizing that whether you win through a straightforward right-handed authority or you win through left-handed authority, it's Jesus' authority in you. So trust him for it all. And receive now with believing hearts the blessing of your God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And God's people said... Amen. Amen.